Amen. Well, this morning we're going to be arriving in Acts chapter 10, uh, verses 1 through 23 this morning. And so I'd like to invite you to go ahead and turn in your copy of God's Word to Acts 10, just the first half of this chapter. And as a way of introduction, uh, several weeks ago I ended up building a, uh, a DIY, do-it-yourself kind of fireplace. Uh, for those of you who've been to my house recently, you've probably seen the fire pit. And I know several of you guys have already enjoyed uh, roasting different things all over the fire. Um, and I know uh, through and through that it's entirely illogical to be uh, having a fire in the middle of, <clears throat> in the middle of summer. But uh, nevertheless, uh, I for some odd reason have found excuses to keep on lighting things on fire and enjoying that fire pit that I just made. Uh, I'm probably a pyromaniac, admittedly so. Uh, and hopefully uh, many of you all can relate with that. Um, but there's something about building a fire that is just so mesmerizing. Not just the fire itself, but actually building it, preparing it in advance. See, there's something about the nature of just arranging the proper fuels to get the best long-lasting fire that you can. Uh, of course, we all know if you put uh, uh, pieces of paper in the fire, it'll only last so long, or even cardboard, of course, it ends up flying away from you. But if you end up building strategically so, certain building blocks, so to speak, uh, you'll end up having a fire that lasts you a good long while. A fire that is purposed for more than just going out in flames and lighting things up for just a moment. A fire that is actually meant and designed to provide warmth and so much greater than just an immediate uh, thing set ablaze for a second or two. Well, this morning in Acts chapter 10, we will see uh, the preparatory work of God in a similar fashion as to building a fire of sorts. You know, a fire that itself is continuing to burn to this very day, 2,000 some odd years later, after the events here in Acts chapter 10. We'll see a fire that is figurative of the gospel advancing and setting ablaze, so to speak, the nations as the gospel made its way and made inroads into all of the various ethnicities that we're about to see in the remainder of Acts as they receive the gospel. See, up until this point in our series, we had seen largely just the Jews uh, come to a saving faith in Christ. We had also seen various proselytes, whether they be Jewish, or sorry, Greek-speaking Jews, or rather they be proselytes who had converted all the way and taken upon themselves the sign of circumcision and actually joined themselves to Judaism. We had seen a lot of that up until this point. And we've even seen various instances like uh, Saul of Tarsus, where salvation was brought to certain individuals, or an Ethiopian eunuch who seemed to be detached from the people of Israel and yet was brought in to the covenant people of God through the gospel being shared with him. Well, here in our uh, text of Acts chapter 10, we're about to see the Lord do this magnificent work, this preparatory work, if you will, in the lives of both Cornelius, a Roman centurion of all people, as well as the apostle Peter to bring the gospel to him. And so we're, gonna, we're actually going to see, essentially, that the gospel was not just purposed for the Jews, but purposed also for the Gentiles. 
And so, without further ado, let's go ahead and look at the text this morning and see what the Word of God has to say to us from Acts chapter 10, uh, verses 1 through just the beginning of verse 23. This is the Word of God forever faithful and true, given to us for our soul's benefit and good. Acts 10 says this, At Caesarea there was a, a man named Cornelius, a centurion of what was known as the Italian cohort, a devout man who feared God with all his household, gave alms generously to the people, and prayed continually to God. About the ninth hour of the day, he saw clearly in a vision an angel of God come in and say to him, Cornelius. And he stared at him in terror and said, What is it, Lord? Or literally, Sir. And he said to him, Your prayers and your alms have ascended as a memorial to God. And now send men to Joppa and bring one Simon who is called Peter. He is lodging with one Simon, a tanner, whose house is by the sea. When the angel who spoke to him had departed, he called two of his servants and a devout soldier from among those who attended him. And having related everything to them, he sent them to Joppa. Now the next day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up on the housetop about the sixth hour to pray. And he became hungry and wanted something to eat. But while they were preparing it, he fell into a trance and saw the heavens opened and something like a great sheet descending, being let down by its four corners upon the earth. In it were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air, and there came a voice to him. Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, by no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. And the voice came to him again a second time, what God has made clean, do not call common. This happened three times, and the thing was taken up at once to heaven. Now, while Peter was inwardly perplexed as to what the vision that he had seen might mean, behold, the men who were sent by Cornelius, having made inquiry for Simon's house, stood at the gate and called out to ask whether Simon, who was called Peter, was lodging there. And while Peter was pondering the vision, the Spirit said to him, Behold, three men are looking for you. Rise and go down and accompany them without hesitation, for I have sent them. And Peter went down to the men and said, I am the one you are looking for. For what is the reason for your coming? And they said, Cornelius, a centurion, an upright and God-fearing man, who was well spoken of by the whole Jewish nation, was directed by a holy angel to send for you to come to his house and to hear what you have to say. So he invited them in to be his guests. This is the word of the Lord. Uh, praise him for his word being given to us. Uh, let's go ahead and pray before we dive into the sermon this morning. Lord Jesus, we thank you that every word of yours will never return void. It is always purposed uh, to accomplish that for which it is set out to do. And so God, we ask that our ears would be opened to hear the gospel and the text here before us, that our eyes would be made to see the glory of Christ, and that our hearts would be so receptive 
to the message of the cross as is portrayed here in our text. King Jesus, may you be the one who uh, ministers to our own hearts in this place. And we ask that the Holy Spirit himself would guide us into all the truth and that he would illuminate the scripture for us, for our good, and for your glory. So we pray all this in your holy name. Amen. Well, friends, I'm sure that you all noticed kind of the awkward stop, if you will, right there in the middle of Acts chapter 10. Uh, and if you know the story of uh, Cornelius and Peter, you know that this is only the first half of the passage itself. And so in case you're worried, uh, don't. Don't worry. Uh, we will get around to the last half of chapter 10 next week. I really wanted to actually make sure that we focus on the first part, though, and do it justice. Because there is just so much here that I wouldn't feel right in just skimming over this preparatory work of God here in the lives of Cornelius and Peter. And so this will be the first of a two-part kind of mini-series, if you will, that I'm entitling Made Clean. Made Clean. Now, here... Again, I want us to focus upon what God was doing in advance in both the lives of Peter and Cornelius alike. And so naturally, I want to split up our, our message into these two sections uh, where we see Cornelius here in the first eight verses, and then in verses 9 through 23, we see this emphasis of God's preparatory work in the life of Peter. So that's how I want to structure our, our message this morning. And so when you look at verses 1 through 8 in this first half of our passage, uh, I think it's important to note that evidently God had been preparing Cornelius for this moment for a number of years. We don't know exactly how long it was, but whatever the course was, uh, God had been working in his life, leading him up until this point. And we know quite a bit about Cornelius, even from the text in not only Acts chapter 10, but also Acts 11, as we'll see a couple weeks from now. We know about Cornelius that he was, as the text says, right there, uh, in verses 1 through 2, a Roman centurion. Now, as the name centurion implies, he was the head over 100, think the word century, 100, uh, 100 people, soldiers. And in that day, centurions may have even been in charge of more than 100, uh, upwards of 300 people, in fact, according to historians. And so he was a leader through and through. He knew how to hold his own, and he was respected by the masses. But it says in the text here that he was essentially commissioned to serve there in the area of Caesarea, in a sea of Jews, if you will. He was a non-commissioned officer there in this coastal town of Caesarea. So what do we know about Caesarea, just given the context here? Well, Caesarea, uh, which I've had the privilege of going to before a few years ago, uh, was this giant, uh, thriving in many ways, place for a lot of soldiers to be parked for a while. Caesarea itself was even this place that was built in honor and rebuilt, really, by Herod the Great in honor of Caesar Augustus. And so Rome was honored in that place in Caesarea. Even the name Caesar is right there in its own name. And yet it was still considered one or part of uh, the Jewish province as a whole. 
And so Cornelius himself was implicitly immersed in the culture of the Jews while still retaining his Roman background. But what is interesting about Cornelius himself being in this weird in-between place as a Roman centurion in a largely Jewish population and Jewish nation is that he is described in verse 2 as being a devout man. A devout man. Now, that word devout may sound kind of basic to us, but it's only used a handful of times in the New Testament. And every time, without fail, it's used to imply the idea of godliness. In essence, someone who was godly, a fearer of God, someone whose life was structured around the things of God, and who was just captivated by the awe and love of God. It's used later on in the letters from, first, uh, from, from Peter rather to the church and other places as well in the same way. And so he was devout. But furthermore, it's interesting, and I think it's even perfectly reasonable to acknowledge that Cornelius was himself not only devout and faithful in his disposition, but truly a God-fearing man, as the text says. We know from even uh, many commentators, such as John Calvin and the Reformed thinkers, and even before that, that they all considered him to be a believer prior to hearing the fullness of the gospel message concerning Christ. Well, how could this be then, right? Well, in essence, he was an old covenant believer. He was someone who knew the law of God and sought to obey it. And he had only this partial knowledge of who God was, this need for a redeemer. And yet he had not, for some reason, heard the fullness of the gospel of Christ Jesus himself as the redeemer, the fulfillment of all the types and shadows that pointed to Christ. Now Cornelius himself was apparently somebody who had taken up a residency there, as I mentioned earlier, amongst the Jews. And yet in light of these things, he must have been captivated by the scriptures. And this in and of itself wasn't all that uncommon. See, many of the Romans who were placed in various regions around the world ended up immersing themselves in the cultures in which they were stationed. If you've served overseas in any branch of the military, you know probably what that looks like. You know that you might engage in the culture and even adopt certain ways of life while still retaining your own way of doing things and your own cultural background. Well, such was the case for a lot of Roman soldiers who were placed and dispersed throughout the known world. They immersed themselves in the cultures in which they were stationed, but they didn't always accept blindly the religion or the way of life within the people's lives. And so it's actually interesting because Cornelius is mentioned as being not just someone who is stationed there, but someone who himself pledged allegiance to the God of Israel. For him to do that was a remarkable feat. To be a God-fearing man in light of his earthly allegiance to Caesar, how could that be? What was remarkable is that he didn't just have a private religion. Uh, he actually led his family in the household worship of the God of Israel. John Calvin, in his own commentary and on Acts chapter 10, mentions that the household of Cornelius was so great, in fact, that it was almost as if he had his own little mini house church right there in his own home. 
for most of his relatives and family members, had obviously heard much about the coming Messiah. And they also were men who knew the faith of Cornelius. And as such, in verse 2 of Acts 10, it describes him as being not only a devout man who feared God, but who feared God along with his household. And what else does it say about him? It says that he gave alms, or literally did acts of charity, and he did it generously to the people of Israel. He was continually even praying unto God. And what we find him here in this text is him in the midst of praying at the hour of prayer at 3 p.m., a common hour of prayer for the Jews in that time. As such, he not only loved God and man, he really did practice and put into practice his faith on a daily basis. His prayers before God were essentially like a burning incense and aroma before God. And his prayers came from a place of ardent faith in the God of Israel. Faith that was only given to him by grace and grace alone. But what is peculiar about Cornelius is that he and his household were not yet proselytes to Judaism. They were still Gentiles. They were still people who had only embraced part of the Old Testament. As we'll find later on in the text of Acts 11, he and his household had not been circumcised. They were not considered proselytes or full-blown converts, even though they had embraced the heart of the message of the Old Testament. And so he was still considered a Gentile, not yet a full-blown proselyte who had embraced all the ceremonies and all of the laws in their entirety. Now, this was a common practice in that day for those who were foreigners. Uh, unfortunately so. Uh, for even from the beginning, God had put in place this pathway to being brought into the nation of Israel. Uh, conversion, if you will. From Genesis 17 and onward. We see it in Deuteronomy and other places where the gospel was meant to be as a light within the nation of Israel for the peoples to come and be attracted to. However, it was common, as it was here, as we see in Cornelius, for even foreigners who were drawn to the true faith and the living God to not want to wholly embrace the nation state of Israel and all of their customs and practices. For as I mentioned, God indeed had provided pathway for foreigners to enter into the people of God, taking on the sign of circumcision and being brought into the people of God, aligning themselves with him entirely. But humanly speaking, the complexities of them joining themselves to another nation were indeed present. If you were a Roman centurion like Cornelius, it'd be a hard challenge, a hard hurdle to jump over to accept everything about the law and even identify with the Jews in that way. And sadly, the idea of conversion, of people coming to the people of Israel and wanting to join themselves with Israel during this time in the book of Acts and even before, as we see in the Gospels, uh, was a bit convoluted. And it was largely convoluted by the Pharisees of all people. See, the Pharisees were, as we know, the most zealous after all, but their doctrine had become so mixed up 
by their own extra-biblical requirements that they placed upon people. They They not only did it to the Jews, but even to those like a Cornelius, implicitly so. And we don't know if this happened to him in particular, but even in Matthew 23, verse 15, for instance, Christ calls out this hypocrisy within the Pharisees who were trying to make converts. Christ, in his own words, said to them, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you travel across the sea and land to make a single proselyte, and yet when he becomes a proselyte, you make him twice as much a child of hell as yourselves. And so, sadly, what should have been a joy-filled privilege to shine the light of the coming Messiah to the nations under the Old Covenant had become this sad, rote duty for the Pharisees. And if anything, only a posturing of themselves before the nations. And so in God's kindness, his providence, really, Cornelius apparently had been spared the trappings of all of this extra-biblical uh, behavior and laws that were added to the scriptures. And so instead of taking upon all these things of the Pharisees and beyond, uh, we see him here, again, as a Gentile, simple in his faith, yet devout. As such, he stood in the long line of other believing foreigners, such as Ruth the Moabitess, Uriah the Hittite, Eleazar, the servant of Abraham, who himself was from Damascus, outside of Abraham's own family originally, and several others who came to faith under the Old Covenant. But for whatever reason, the gospel message had not yet been made known to Cornelius and his household. Surely he had heard tidbits about a certain Jesus of Nazareth. He had even known that there were types and shadows in the Old Testament that would point to this Messiah to come, all of this Messiah's graces, actions, sufferings, and benefits, as our Westminster Confession puts it. But apparently Cornelius had not yet heard of the atoning death of Christ, his resurrection from the dead, and that forgiveness of sins through faith in Jesus' name alone were the fulfillment of all of these Old Testament types and shadows. And so in spite of all these circumstances, can you as well see how God was preparing the heart of Cornelius to then finally hear the full message of the gospel of Jesus? Cornelius was in many ways being primed, almost like a log to the fire, to hear the gospel. And for through him and Peter, as we'll see next, to be, as it were, Uh, purposed for this blazing fire yet to come to the Gentile nations. See, in God's perfect timing, he spoke to Cornelius through an angel in a vision, and he was summoned to send for Peter himself. Cornelius, as we read in the text, obeyed quickly. And strategically speaking, being a soldier that he was, a centurion, uh, he strategically sent forth two of his own members of the household, uh, those who knew him well, who knew the story and knew everything that he had shared with them, but also another man who was devout. Again, that same word for godly, as it's always translated there. A faithful soldier who was arguably also another Old Covenant believer. So what happened next? What happened next here in our text? 
Well, this is where we come to verses 9 through 23. Not just how the Lord was preparing Cornelius, but now how the Lord is preparing Peter for this interesting conversation, to say the least. Now, looking at the text, we know that Peter was lodging at the house of a certain Simon called the Tanner. A lot of our English translations just say simply Simon the Tanner. And uh, no, he wasn't one of the members of Full House, you know, the Tanner family back in the day. (laughs) Uh, But he was rather someone who probably came from this background of being a Tanner, a worker of leather, quite literally so. Now, given his name, uh, Simon the Tanner, he was one who worked with all kinds of hides and probably lots of unclean things, to say the least. And so it's ironic that Peter already, again in God's providence, was already in a position of having to think through the idea of cleanliness or uncleanliness, what is common and what is holy. He was already thinking through such things, most, most likely. Now, some commentators suggest that uh, Peter would not have normally associated with men like Simon the Tanner uh, because of, again, his profession, working with leather and probably lots of unclean things all the time. And yet, ironically enough, uh, Peter, what was his vocation? Uh, He was a fisherman by trade, right? And so he was probably used to dealing with unclean things, but again, in his mind, he always was separating the clean from the unclean, the common from the holy, the clean from the unclean. And so we find him here in the house of Simon the Tanner. And we see him here in verse 9 that he went up to the housetop to pray. Now Peter himself was probably likely fasting. We don't know that explicitly from the text, but it was likely that he was fasting as he was hungry, as we see here in the next verse, and growing hungrier by the hour. He might have just been a hungry person, let's just be honest, but uh, regardless, he was probably fasting and steeped, as we see here, in prayer. And it was in the midst of all this, probably thinking about food and seeing all this leather around him downstairs and getting away from all of it and, you know, putting himself upstairs onto the rooftop, away from all of that stuff and the smell of food being prepared, that he fell into a trance. And we don't know exactly what this would have looked like, but he saw some kind of vision from the Lord. And he heard this voice speaking to him, saying, rise, Peter, kill and eat, right there in verse 13. But what did Peter do? It says that he resisted. And so the voice responded to him, lovingly so, yet still with full authority, saying, what God has made clean, do not call common. Three times over, this resistance, along with God's reassurance, happened over and over and over again. What God has made clean, do not call common. And so when Peter awoke, he was just utterly confused, as we read, as to what all of this would mean. And yet he couldn't shake that message. What God has made clean, do not call common. Now, was this simply a case of his stomach growling? Or maybe the bad pizza that he might have had the night before? Was this maybe a sign that he could actually have pepperoni pizza now and actually add pork to his meal? Uh, No. (laughs) It was much bigger than just about food. This vision was much more important than just that. 
And yet in the moment, he was entirely perplexed. What could this mean? Again, is this about food? Is this maybe about the ceremonial laws of God? What is clean and unclean? Is that all it's about? Well, in that same moment, the men who were sent from Cornelius were downstairs requesting his presence. And thankfully, at the command of the Lord, through the voice of the Holy Spirit to him, he was made ready to go and meet them and to hear them out. In verse 22, uh, after he asked them, what are you all here for, essentially, they say this, Cornelius, a centurion, an upright and God-fearing man who is well spoken of by the whole Jewish nation, was directed by a holy angel to send for you to come to his house and to hear what you have to say. <laughs> what would you do in that moment? See, I can imagine under any other circumstances, Peter would have been frightened out of his skin. Can you imagine yourself being in Peter's sandals, so to speak, hearing these men who were of foreign descent, Romans most likely, or those from other nations even, who were downstairs and requesting you to, hey, come on and meet with a centurion uh, who could easily just put you in prison or any kind of thing for all you know. Come with us. Go ahead and come with us. No big deal, right? No. <laughs> he should have been scared out of his own mind, humanly so. And yet, praise God that he wasn't. Not that it was about the strength or, or sheer uh, willpower of his own mind, but rather what we see here is the comforting assurance of the Lord. See, by the Spirit, he assured him this was all part of God's plan. And so did Peter understand what was going on? Heck no. Of course not. But did he at least know from God's own speaking to him that this was much bigger than himself? Absolutely. See, thankfully, this Peter had by God's grace been made bold up until this point. This was not anymore the same fearful Peter that we saw even at the end of the Gospels. This wasn't even the same Peter that we saw in Acts chapter 1. This was a Peter who had at this point, by God's grace and God's grace alone, had already counted the cost of discipleship. He had already counted his life of no value nor as precious to himself any longer. And he was smitten and captivated by the glories of Christ and what King Jesus was about to do through this strange and bizarre event before him. See, beyond any human sight or reasoning, he was assured in this moment that the hand of God was indeed at work. Again, did he recognize what was about to go on? No. But was he ready? By God's grace, yes. And so his heart and his mind were prepared by God to move forward and in the moment respond to whatever it was that God would put in front of him. And so in the moment, he went ahead and invited them in to be his guests. Well, friends, this brings us to a place of questioning in our own hearts. See, do we also experience moments like these? I know I'm not talking about otherworldly visions or hearing the voice of God. Uh, I'd be a little concerned if that was the case for us. But what I mean are those moments when God, by his spirit, through scripture, 
And knowing the gospel of Jesus illuminates this to us and gives us clarity in our decision making. When we are so led by the Spirit that we end up taking on the mind of Christ in moments like these, not by our own willpower, but again by grace. These moments when the Spirit attends our soul and brings us comfort by the truths of the gospel to then lead us to action. See, each one of us by nature, as we know, are of course all driven by forces outside of us. External forces and even internal forces alike that lead us in our decision making. We're always, in essence, living in a reactionary way to things around us or even things within us. Like Peter with his own hunger, perhaps. <laughs> he could have easily done. And yet, whether we care to admit it or not, we live in this constant state of making timely decisions. And yet we know, intrinsically so, that we are never the determiners of our own faith, or let alone our own reactions. We have a hard time uh, sometimes understanding the fact that we don't have our own destiny in control let alone even the briefest moments of our lives and our decisions that are made around us. We're all driven by these things around us. But how sweet it is when the Lord himself captivates our attention and leads us into wisdom. How sweet it is. It's no surprise to me then that Peter was being prepared by God, much like Cornelius had been before in the first eight verses, to hear what God would lead him in doing. And he was made ready by, again, grace through faith, through this cultivation of a life of prayer. And even arguably so from this, given his hunger, maybe even fasting. That's not to, you know, uh, parade Peter as being this great person but rather there is something to be said about those times when we find ourselves just smitten by God and in places of just ardent prayer and even, dare I say, fasting before God, when we are more open to hear the word of God from Scripture and seek to apply it to our lives. It's in these moments where we are mesmerized by God that the various truths of the gospel, the aspects of the gospel, become all the more uh, near to our hearts. And here, above all else, there was one beautiful truth about the gospel that was being put right in front of Peter. And that was the gospel's efficacy. Its ability to not only save the Jews, but even also the Gentiles alike, as Paul would later say in Romans 1.16. See, imagine if Peter had been so steeped in prayer and fasting and enraptured in the awe of God, how his response would have maybe looked different if he wasn't doing those things. Again, not to put any kind of weight upon him or to lift him up as a wonderful example, but rather to help us to recognize that those times prepare us to be more open to the Lord. See, the Lord had prepared him for this moment in order for him to be eager and ready to share the gospel with a Gentile. And as we'll see next week in part two of this whole uh, 
sermon, as, you, as it were, on Acts chapter 10, we'll see that Peter would end up sharing more than even just uh, the words that we'll read. He ends up sharing pretty much probably the entire message that we know of as the Gospel of Mark with this family. All the different events that we see throughout the Gospel of Mark, he would end up sharing with them and, and elaborating upon for their sake. And so he was fueled by the fire of the gospel in advance. Now, of course, this isn't to say that we are all, we are all called to be eager beavers like Peter himself, but rather that we are to be men and women who are also steeped in the word of God, like a tea bag in boiling water, to just become saturated by the word of God. So that even our interactions and how we deal with people and things in our lives are shaped and informed by the gospel. And as we do that, again, this is God's gift all through and through. As we become more and more like that, as we look away from ourselves and to the things of God, we will be all the more prepared to proclaim the excellencies of Christ to a lost world let alone our own town of Culpeper and beyond. And so knowing these things, may it be true of us that God would also kindle within us a desire to see his kingdom come and flourish in our midst. May we be devoted to prayer by the grace of God. Let's go ahead and do that this morning. Father, we thank you that in you is life. Eternal life. And that we are people who are made to see the beauty and the glories of Christ our Savior. Jesus, we thank you that we ourselves, I imagine all of us here, are indeed Gentiles uh, by birth. Probably not Jewish in our own blood. And so we see, even in part, just the beauty and the wonder of the fact that you would call those who are outside of the, the people of Israel to yourself. But Lord, let us also be captivated by this truth in such a way that we ourselves would desire the same for others. That we would have hearts that are filled with the gospel and are so led in such a way that we cannot contain this message to ourselves. Let us respond to the glorious gospel of grace by being devoted to prayer and the reading of your word, both privately and publicly alike. For in these things we lean upon Christ, the one who, as he said in John 12, verse 32, would in his own death draw the attention of all men to himself. And so may we see and savor Christ and the message of his cross all the more and be compelled by that wonderful truth that he would love us and give himself for us to share this wonderful gospel with our neighbors and our loved ones alike. So we pray all of this in Christ's holy name. Amen.